Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Technique, the podcast where artists talk about how technology is affecting them and their practice. This week's episode is about small businesses and it's presented by the wonderful Richard Adams. Here he is introducing it. In this edition, I'm going to explore the notion of technology and how it impacts small and smallish businesses. I'm not talking about the businesses that actually use technology to build an app and that invest in in VR just to produce VR service, etc. I'm talking about the businesses that are actually allied to technology. So, for instance, a marketing agency who, you know, primarily primarily their job is about getting a message of their clients' products out to people in the most appropriate way. Now, clearly, in the modern era, the most appropriate way is often through digital channels. Now, these agencies that are small have to compete with the likes of Ogilvy, who can put money into labs, who can sign enterprise-scale platform agreements to deliver technology for clients, and, you know, who can actually pull money out of reserve to deal with things. Smaller businesses have always had a unique problem in that they've never been able to just invest up front because often the money simply isn't there. The money that goes out is used to fund the next round of business, which brings in just a little bit more, and there's a, a profit that occurs, but it's never big enough to spend £100,000 on a platform. And smaller businesses are also interesting in that they are more pressured, in a sense, because when they are pitching for work and when they are out there in the market, their larger competitors can often come in, throw money at something and crush their entry into the market. So they're particularly vulnerable, but yet businesses such as marketing agencies are thriving at a smaller scale. And they are thriving because of technology to a large extent. The technology out there is opening up many, many more possibilities for carrying messages and for exploiting messages and for reaching audiences and customers. Um, They're providing many more opportunities to connect with customers. And the smaller marketing agencies, I think, are actually, if they are clever, finding that technology is their friend, not an ongoing overhead cost as Certainly it was seen as 10 years ago that, that any, any investment in technology was speculative and was a big overhead. And it isn't anymore. It's a spend in the same way you would spend on uh, printers and you know uh, Office 365, etc., just to be able to communicate within the business. This is just how their clients work. They expect technologically determined solutions to a large extent or ideas-driven solutions realised within technological parameters. <laughs> So to explore this, I'm going to talk to two people, and what I'll pretty much do is let the interviews play out with a slight bit of editing and trimming, uh, and I'll cut between sort of four, four or five main questions that I ask them. And the two people concerned will explore this issue from you know slightly different angles. Uh, the first person is Andrew Roberts, who is managing director of a company, a marketing agency of about 30 people called Gravity Thinking. 
and the second person is a consultant to startups and social businesses um, across the UK and in Europe uh, and he's called Steve Taylor. I'll let them introduce themselves um, in a second. But both of these people will come at the same solution from a slightly different problem. Andrew's problem with his agency is to make sure they are technologically relevant, that they are connecting to audiences in the most appropriate way, and that they're delivering on the promise that they make to their clients. Steve's role is more to take the overview and to look at how businesses can exploit technology to achieve their mission while making them and keeping them and growing them as valid businesses. So first of all, we'll hear from Andrew Roberts, and then we'll hear from Steve Taylor. Both interviews are approximately 20 minutes long, one straight after the other, um, which should fit nicely into a commute. So uh, my name is Andrew Roberts. I'm managing partner of an agency called Gravity Thinking, uh, who are a digital communications agency, uh, the URL is www.gravitythinking.com and uh, we are on Twitter, handle is Gravity Thinking. First thing I really want to talk about is, you know, has, as a small business working in the creative field, how do you actually approach keeping up with technology changes? Okay, well, we're um, a business of 30 people now. Uh, we've been going for, what, seven or eight years. And obviously over that time, there's been a huge evolution and change in terms of uh, technology and it is always changing as well and one of the biggest challenges is keeping up with tech, with tech changes. However, what I would say is one of the benefits of being a small business is that you do have the ability more effectively to keep up with it, I guess, in a more agile way than I, I see other bigger businesses being able to do it. And by that, I mean empowerment of people to get out there and see what's going on, explore, experiment with it, and try and apply it wherever possible to all of the work we're doing. And that means that they can bring it into workflows far, quick, far more quickly. So a good example we've had recently uh, can be around probably a couple of years ago, but how we could start looking at um, virtual reality um, and looking at how we can buy kit quickly, apply it to a business challenge that we've got at the time, which was around looking at Glenfiddich and, for example, Glenfiddich, how we can help take people to a virtual distillery and show them around the distillery, um, and then film it, buy the stuff, film it, present it to the client as a kind of proactive project, um, and that allows us to explore it and allows them to see it. So I suppose from a small business perspective, I think you have to keep up with it. I think you can be more agile in the way you do keep up with it. And the way we would do that is trying to always apply it to our business. I, th I think some of what you've said there is uh, interesting because when I've worked in small business in the past, they have been up to the minute rather than ahead of it, whereas what you're talking about is proactively spending money to some extent to do things to show that you're capable of doing it. Whereas I think my experience of small businesses certainly a decade ago was that they would only do as much as they can and wouldn't venture money like that unless they could guarantee a return. Is that is that a change, do you think? Or? Yeah, I think it has changed because I think as a small business, you have to show a difference versus the big boys. And showing a difference, I think, is around a mindset in terms of always out there looking for what is new and, and having a, a genuine desire to wanting to actually grab hold of it and do something with it and understand it. But I think also that means we have to invest ourselves. So, for example, 
with a couple of clients at the moment, we're actually finding new technologies and going to them and saying, we'll go halves with you on the exploration of this technology. So we will do it at cost base only. So they will give us some money and we will say, right, as long as you pay for the hard cost, we will pay the people cost associated with it. So do you think that's a key thing in convincing clients that you are capable of dealing with, say, the Ogilvy's of this world who can spend millions on a lab? Yeah. I think uh, there's, there's a couple of things we've come across before. Mm. I always remember someone telling me that um, uh, pioneers get arrows in their backs, and, and whereas, you know, it, it's about being far enough ahead that showing a client is something new and something they should be looking at, but not so far ahead that they think this is so out there that nobody's going to engage with it. So, I mean, another good example is 360 video, and this was about a year, and just over a year ago, is actually we went out as part of an investment. We bought the rig that would have the um, all the GoPros on that allowed us to do it, based on the fact that the client was quite happy to hire six of them was costing two thirds of what it costs just to buy the product itself. Mm. So we said, spend a bit more money. We'll all own it. We'll experiment with it and we'll use it. So I think there's an I think you have to do that to stay ahead of the big boys, but also there is a point that you stay ahead by recommending it and you stay ahead by actually constantly looking for the new thing and not spending what I think they do is spend far too long navel gazing around whether they should do it or not, whether it's right or not, and how they can get paid for all of that work that they've done getting there. Do you think that has made um, uh, has changed the way that you actually run your business then, in, in the sense that I think a decade ago, a smallish business, and I've said small, obviously you're technically small, but 30 people is quite a lot. Um, you know, a small business wouldn't do that investment up front. And I think, is that a noticeable change, or is it just something you felt you had to do? No, I think it's something which... I feel I think you have to do to differentiate yourself as a small business. I think also the fact that technology is moving so much quicker now than 10 years ago in terms of the physical manifestation of it uh, means that you've got to show clients for thinking of it all the time. And I think there's also, even as a business like us, there's lots of other businesses like us snapping our heels, going to them all the time with new proactive ideas. So it doesn't take much for someone to go and buy a VR camera and a VR rig go into William Grant and say, look, we've got this great idea for how we do this. And they grab hold of it and go, yeah, that's shiny and new. Let's do that and investigate it with them. So we have to show that we are there. So they'll then go, oh, by the way, someone came in and showed us this stuff. And we say, yeah, yeah we're all over that. Well, we've got that as well. Remember, we talked to you about it last week. Um, I think the, the other thing we found as well is that um, technology is becoming a very good way at demonstrating a creative idea. So it's a facilitator for us rather than necessarily the actual idea itself. So the 360 video is a perfect example of that, where you say, right, I want to be able to demonstrate um, more interest for the client to go up to um, Glenfiddich Distillery and, and feel their way around in their own way. 360 does that, whether that be about filming using drones, whether that be underwater filming, whether that be VR in terms of actually knowing what it's like inside a um, uh, going to a factory for Hyundai to understand what it's like being in that car. Um, and also, a good example at the moment is a campaign we've just done where um, the, the product proposition for Hyundai is around positivity. So possible is, is their kind of idea. That's what the whole com company is born out of. So the idea we had was around positivity um, and how can you connect the positivity to the way you talk about the car. 
what we use for that is EEG readers to, to understand positive thought and had a great creative idea we filmed last week of driving a car via positive thought. So can that be done? And we've done it. We did it two weeks ago in a field up in uh, the Midlands um, and actually had three different people driving a car with EEG readers on with positive thought. So we had a, a life coach, sports people who owned I sponsor uh, Atlantic Rowers and a, um, a partially sighted person to understand what brings their positivity. So great idea, but executed through technology. So technology is also there as a facilitator as well as a kind of a differentiator in its own right. So do you think the basic thing of um, one thing that's, you know, a little thing you just said in that is that, you know, you almost use technology to pitch ideas as well. So you've kind of gone much further than just having decks of slides with ideas and, um, you know, occasional video sizzle reels. You're actually, in a way, making stuff, making prototypes. Yeah, if you talk to our um, creative director, he, his belief is that you can't sell an idea, he doesn't believe you can sell an idea properly on PowerPoint, mm. that actually what you should be doing is building prototypes. So what we, when we pitched for Hendrix last end of last year, we, we had three fantastic ideas. And actually, rather than um, just have lots of diagrams and pictures as we always used to do, we actually built it. So we bought a, we've got a creative technologist here now, and he actually spent, he said he'll work at the weekend and he got a soldering iron out. And literally, we've got a small little lab area here and he literally built something. And one was around connected glasses. So this idea around creating a kind of copper top to a glass that when you bang them together, they will be charged and there will be a spark that comes from it. So that was a kind of all to do with the spark that comes from drinking together. Another one with Hendrix was a mind reading top hat that again had EEG readers for your mind and it would create a um, pepper's ghost illusion that goes above your head but we literally built it there for the pitch and the client straight away just goes yes I want that. Do you think um, it's interesting there you said you know you've got a little lab here and you've got you've been making things do you think the, um, the era of the uh, drawing board and, and desk and things are, are sort of well on the way well out, well gone now effectively? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, again, we talk a lot about um, how you can present something in a way that's more compelling and interesting to clients. And, you know, and as I said earlier, people like shiny objects. So the ability to sort of show, you know, show, don't tell as a principle always um, starts to work so much better. And it, it does come back to the, the days of literally having a lab and, you know, some uh, a mad professor there kind of putting things together and almost saying to a client, this is it. Uh, but still at the heart of it is the creative idea so it still has to come back to an idea you know technology by itself is is not meaningful do you see um your competition doing that um i mean is everyone in your your field now starting to do that the big boys the smaller ones um we, we see it occasionally i think uh as i said we've had a couple of clients who come back to us and said oh Someone's just done a proactive piece for us that's around VR, for example, or whatever. Um, they've, they've come in and just given it to us on a plate. Um, and, you know, we would always say, well, we can do it. We've done it. We've shown you we can do it. Um, I just think the bar gets higher and higher now because the cost of entry for a business like ours is very low. Um, clients are becoming less and less loyal, and therefore you need to – you know, understand that everybody is tapping at your heels and they'll find whatever way they can to do that. Do you feel then that things like the day of the retainer, to some extent, is gone? 
Yes and no. I mean, the business, if I look at our business, we do have some retained business, um, but it tends to be more to do with delivery of day-to-day projects that clients can't do themselves as opposed to retainer for bigger ideas. So if I think back to one of the ad agencies we work with, Glenn Fiddick, they, they were on a big retainer, and that was just to do with lots of ongoing planning, um, lots of ongoing thinking, um, and probably one big campaign a year that manifested itself as a 30-second ad or whatever. Um, the days of that, I think, are gone. Well, they're definitely gone as far as I observe it. Clients are willing to pay for stuff that's day-to-day. So our community management, for example, they will pay for that. Um, they'll pay for an ongoing presence in digital and social um, but for campaigns, it's then it's more up and down. So the, the usual kind of peaks and troughs of, of payment. So how do you, as a smaller business, keep your people up to date with skills? Because obviously you've brought, you know, you've, you've mentioned you've got a, a maker, you know, a creative technology sat there. You've got a digital creative director. But how do you keep yourself and other people up to date with possibilities? Um, I suppose one, one of the points we always talk to people about is curiosity. So um, employing people who are curious. I suppose that the phrase you normally use is T-shaped people. So people who have kind of interests outside of just their job necessarily, or even an interest in their job, because that's not always the same thing. Um, but pe- people who kind of say, oh, I'm curious within social as a whole or technology and social. Um, and, and by that, I mean, we employ people, for example, who are bloggers um, who work in you know, food blogging or people who look in technology or people who um, are interested in music, for example, um, so that their interests are outside. So curiosity starts to become part of that. And then the point there, I think, is, is encouraging the curiosity. So we, for example, we will always fund anybody who comes to us and says, I'm curious about this. Can I have some money to investigate this further? Go to events. Um, we do tend to go to events that we think are additive to our learning to not just us for people in the company so we don't we make a thing about not going to marketing-led events anymore because i think it's just self-congratulatory there's lots of people going look at my case studies and they're wonderful but i I find i go to south by southwest every year for example um, and seeing that is hugely inspiring to to look at new technologies and new ways of people are applying things martin i know takes his team to off festival in Barcelona every year. It's more of a design festival, but there's technology within that. Um, Web Summit, and then looking at other tech festivals around the UK. So um, you're, you're actually talking about really effectively, to, to my mind, as, a, as someone from an art background, is um, supporting the purest disciplines effectively rather than the business disciplines. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, that's how you get good ideas because I think ideas come from those mere more purest areas than than if you go to more business discipline, I think you end up with a generic approach that everyone else will have, um, and it just doesn't cut through. It just doesn't. It's not interesting enough. And, and ultimately, you've got to think for us, the test of whether our work is good or not is how engaged the consumer is in what we're creating. So you've got to get out there and see what's new, what's cutting edge, but also in the context of what consumers will be interested in. So. <laughs> Interestingly, do you think the life cycle of a creative idea is now shorter, longer, or about the same? I think it's probably about the same. The the basics for me don't change. The basics of what creativity is all about is still the same thing, which is as long as it fits against the brand, as long as it 
addresses a company objective of where they're trying to achieve it. That, that's the same as it was 20, 30, 40 years ago. I think how that's presented changes hugely because it has to be done in a world where people have, you know, you're competing with cats, essentially, and cat videos and things like that. So it's got to be something which is quick, impactful, interesting to them, relevant, delivered in the right place in terms of it's not always on a website, for example. I mean, there's a big thing we talk about just now. I've been in a meeting where I'm saying, actually, to a client, you don't need a website. You know, you need to create content and then distribute it in the right place at the right time to make it interesting to people. Um, so I think the lifespan of a creative idea is still the same. It's just how that, how that creative idea is activated to people has changed. Okay, talking about the art side, could you talk a little bit about how you keep the balance of art and tech or idea and tech in check? Because it's very easy now to run with a piece of technology and actually all you're doing is showing people what the technology can do. Yeah. And I think you, you, sorry, you just said about you know keeping in line with the brand idea. So how do you keep that balance as, a, as an MD, as a manager? Yeah, I think it's always about not getting uh, the shiny new object syndrome that lots of people talk about is clients will always get carried away with the shiny new object and, and you have to bring it back to say the shiny new object is a facilitator. You know, it's, it's a conduit to tell, a, tell an idea or tell a story. Um, we know it's a very good way of doing it, but it still has to tell a story. And as soon as you lose what the story or the message is and the technology overtakes that, then you've it's the wrong way around. You have to readdress that balance. So the, the Hyundai example is a very good one where you're saying driven by possibility or po sorry, driven by pos positivity is their, is their um, mantra. That's therefore how you have to therefore make sure that comes across. So when we were doing the creative idea for that, we were saying, why don't we look at positive and negative people? And then have a who's driven the car further, fastest, and everything else. But the idea itself starts to fall apart because you're then talking about negativity be positivity, not positivity in its own right. So, you know, our creative team are very clear on saying what's the creative idea, and that has to be the thread that runs through the whole thing. And as I said, the technology is a facilitator. I mean, I suppose in a way that's no different to uh, how advertising would have been done 30 years ago, is it? Because you know, there would have been loads of different ideas, but it had to keep to that central concept. Yeah, and you, you would change it to the channel. So 30 years ago, you might say a radio ad has to have impact in the first two or three seconds to get people watching. A TV ad has to address all of these things and has to fit to the channel purpose. Um, and the, the way you do the creative idea is therefore within that. Yeah, it's exactly the same idea. It's just making sure technology doesn't run away with it because that's the danger that you see a lot and we see it all the time that someone's come up with a, with an, a technology that becomes the lead idea and then the idea is lost completely. How much of a change have you seen in clients over the last decade and, and how do you think clients will continue to evolve? Because certainly when I worked with advertising clients and marketing clients, they were very very nervous about the whole digital thing. And of course, they're not now. Um, there seems to be a real split for me of, um, of clients that we come across there. There are the, um, the slightly more, the lot more senior level, older clients who don't have any real understanding necessarily of a new digital world and are very willing to learn, open to be told what is right and lean on a professional perspective which is right. There's then at the other end of the spectrum, younger, 
guys coming through who are very very up with it, use technology themselves all the time, whether that be about anything from a mobile implication to, to understanding exactly what these technologies are. I'm very keen on bringing those into their communications. There's probably the dangerous middle area where there's a lack of understanding, but a lack of desire to show that understand lack of understanding. So there's always that the danger of someone who knows just a little bit, and um, and that therefore overtakes what we try and do for them. I.e., they kind of they're always like, no, no, you need to use it like this. And our idea is always, well, no, that's understand. We know our our area and what you should be doing. So I think that education in clients seems to be good. It's just a question of of how educated they are to digital and how much they understand what they're trying to do. Do they still see digital as separate? Some do, some don't. Some bigger organisations are still siloed, so they still say we've got PR, we've got digital, and we've got um, advertising. Um, the more open-minded ones would would still have silos, but they would work. You would always work together as a bigger group. So Hyundai have actually Hyundai, for example, own an ad agency called Nessian, um, who who create their pure advertising. They have a digital agency who builds their website because of being a car brand. They need to have a a very, the a very network and complex, yeah. very good functional yeah. website. And then they have us who work with them for digital and social and content, which is more about creating an ongoing communication with people outside of that, which is to do with bigger ideas as well. But all of those are done together. All of those are done in association with each other. Um, so, and then, and then at the other end of the spectrum, you get clients who say, I just want to work with one agency who has the lead in what we're doing. So with Hendrix, we've got the lead idea at the moment. And then we are coordinating a media agency, a PR agency, and a web build agency to deliver the actual big idea. So you were saying about um, clients understanding. Yeah, well, it's, it's the whole thing about clients. You know, the, the clients certainly I found, you know, I've found over the years have changed and they've been, but they're still slightly nervous, I think, sometimes of putting all their eggs in one basket, still sometimes nervous of working with smaller companies. Yeah, yeah, there's, I think there's, um, yes, absolutely. And also, I think within this, we have to remember um, the world hasn't changed to the point where TV is no longer relevant or radio or press is no longer relevant. They are all still relevant. And everything you talk about is a whole communication ecosystem. In, in many ways, it's become more complicated because people still watch TV. People still read newspapers. It might be online rather than offline, but they're still listen to the radio, but they also spend a hell of a lot of time online. And within online, they spend a hell of a lot of time in lots of different places. So I can understand for a client, it must be a really difficult time because they're really trying to understand what is the lead channel. I read an article today um, that Mark Ritson wrote about Gap, saying that um, Gap CEO had gone big on digital and it had disastrous results for the company, certainly in the US because what he'd done is too far down that line and forgotten the fact that at Christmas, people like seeing a Gap ad in the US and UK, as every year it happens. Like John Lewis, the same effect, um, and it has a big impact on what they're doing. So clients still need to kind of put their eggs in different baskets, but make sure that everything coordinates and the strategies are going in the same direction and it's not done in isolation. I think one of the things that you, you know, just saying there, while you were talking, I was just thinking that what seems to have happened in my head, if I'm reading you correctly as well, is that because there are many more channels now, many more ways of communicating, um, 
it's almost impossible for one agency to actually deal with it all in the way that, you know, possibly with some campaigns and brands they used to. So how do you think money-wise things are panning out between small agencies and larger agencies like yourself? Because there must be many more companies in the mix within a, within a brand. Yeah, I mean, it's still the bun fights that still go on always around budgets and money. Uh, interestingly, some, if I take a specific example, some of our clients have moved money from um, what you might define more uh, traditionally as above the line into digital and social. And that's more about being always on and a, an open brand. Um, some of them are spending money as they were before. They might not invest enough in certain areas, but they're, they're slightly changing towards that area. I take someone like Lymphidic and I'm quite open to it. Um, media is a hugely moving feast at the moment, um, mainly because a lot of the media agencies are still traditionally buying media in the way they always have, because that's how their whole um, commercial model is predicated on, or their whole commercial model is predicated on. Um, and that's a huge challenge for them because social advertising, for example, is very cost effective and cheap and is done in small little chunks. And it, they can't do it. So we do a lot of that for our clients, for example. Um, so there's big challenges there for them in terms of allocating media monies that are purely for big buys versus smaller day-to-day -day kind of um, uh, sequential buys on a lot of stuff we're doing on social. Um, so I think how they allocate the money is far more complicated for them. But I think they... It's, it's more of a flexible, agile approach to kind of say, this is how much money we've got, you tell us how you think we can spend it, and then over time we'll kind of move things as we go along. So we're just doing something at the moment for a, a new, uh, an RFP for a client where they're saying, actually, tell us how to spend the money we've got. Um, but we'll probably go back to what we want, but at least there's a kind of a, a listening to what they're doing. There's a consultancy element to that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, which is unusual. Um, do you think? Yeah, I think a lot of that's because they don't actually know what they're doing. So a lot of them are saying, "I wouldn't." I mean, if I was, I'd find it as a client now. I'd, I wouldn't, even with all the knowledge I have, would be a nightmare because you you have to know what works and doesn't work, and that changes all the time. I mean, one thing I would say as underpinning all of this is a very big um, focus on reporting and evaluation and measurement as well. So starting to be more clearly defined about the success metrics for digital uh, digital comms. And that's not just about Google Analytics. That's more about, I don't know, brand metrics that TV used to have against social, for example, and understanding, does it really matter that someone likes a brand? Does it really matter that they want to look at some of your videos? Um, what, what impact does that have on brand metrics? What impact does that have on sales even? Um, so that's kind of the big, uh, the big battle is the moment in media and then reporting and evaluation, I think, really over and above technology. Yeah, I think, I, think, I, I mean, I have to agree. I think the technology is becoming so democratic and easy, it's almost irrelevant to worry about it. But actually proving the value is another matter. Yeah. Um, yes, exactly, underpinning. And then that's kind of almost the challenge that a lot of the big channels went through years ago. It's what you will remember digital went through yeah. 10 or 15 years ago where everyone was saying, yeah, what does it matter? And digital said, yeah, we're far more accountable than the other bigger channels. Um, and it's the same challenge that technology is going to have now, which is what if I, if I spend 100 grand on a VR and it's only experienced by 100, 200 people because it's quite complex, does that really pay back? Or what can you do to make more of it? 
um, if I'm spending 100 grand a year on community management, does that really make a difference to my brand? Do I, is it a cost of doing business or is it additive to what we're trying to do? In the future, in the next sort of 10 years, do you see, and this really is the last question, um, do you see yourselves and agencies and companies like yourselves colliding much more and sort of crossing boundaries? Because obviously you're community managing, you're dealing with statistics and reporting. Um, yeah. You know, do you see yourself becoming part PR, part advertising, part communications, part social, or whatever the terms that will emerge are? Yeah, I think, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of talk about um, kind of, I went to a talk the other day that was talking about uh, um, where things evolve in terms of whether you're a kind of foundry or whether you're, a, you're just throwing stuff out all the time and you're trying to be purist in what you're doing. Um, I think it would always change the same way as specialists become generalists, become specialists, become generalists, as happened in marketing. The same thing will happen. At the moment, we seem to be going back to more of a generalist perspective where everybody's doing a bit of everything. I think what will happen is the big boys will catch up and then the smaller companies have to be then more specific to be able and specialists to be able to differentiate themselves. And then they'll probably go ahead again and then it will become more generalist and so on. Which is exactly how things were 10 years ago. You know, you yeah. had a very much more clearly defined. And we would hire that small agency there to deal with the email shots or you know, yeah. whatever it was. Yeah, I mean, it's a good, very good example of that. It's something like social, where when we first started the business seven, eight years ago, social was a differentiator. All the big boys couldn't do it. Nobody knew what was going on. It was a, it was a battleground. Um, and I think there was lots of specialist agencies that popped up. And then they very quickly either got bought or they died because actually social moved into being a more general point with digital and PR and general communication. Social is just digital and digital is communications now. So everything amorphizes into one thing. Something will happen soon and technology is probably one part of it where there's a spin-off, become a specialist, that then becomes part generalist again and so on and so on. What, what happens, I don't know, but... Um, there's a number of theories around technology, I think around media and channel distribution. Influencer marketing is a good one right now. There's the, the new, or new, but that's one of the things that they talk about a lot. And that's very specialist influencer marketing where you're going down to the niches of, of finding people who can talk like you're doing now within, um, you know, Creative Hub and, and talking of Create Hub about what you're saying, finding people like you to talk about mm. technology, for example. That's where that's how deep influencer marketing has gone. Therefore, it's a very specialist skill. But people will catch up, and that will become mainstream, and then the next thing will happen. Hi, I'm Steve Taylor, and uh, you can find me online at studiostevetaylor.com. So, Steve, you work um, advising and consulting with, over the last few years in particular, a lot of interesting startups in the tech, creativity and social fields. Yeah. Um, how do you think those businesses that are emerging that aren't just pure technical keep up with technology changes? How do you see that happening? Okay, well, in the startup world, there's a, there's a useful distinction that's often drawn between a 
a, a, what's called a tech startup and uh, what's referred to as a product startup. And this kind of uh, refers back to the, 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 the origin point of the idea and the skills of the founder. So in the tech, tech startup, exactly as it says, you start with the technology and then figure out a use for it and figure out how to productize it. Uh, you turn it into something that people can uh, use. Whereas in a product startup, you, 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 you have an, you, it comes the other way around. You have an idea for something that people can use and then you find the technology uh, to fulfill that. And um, I, I think I've, it's fair to say that I've mostly uh, worked with the, the latter, the product type. And when I work on um, accelerator programs, which I do a lot, uh, the accelerator programs in the UK tend to have a, I would, I would say, a big proportion of product startups. Um, I think the image... So the, the the media image of the of the startup scene, which is dominated by by the big successes from Silicon Valley, um, tends to emphasise this uh, the importance of original technology. Um, and interesting now that that itself has become a myth already, because if you look at the more recent um, Silicon Valley mega successes, the so-called unicorns like Uber. Uh, it's much more about innovating a business model than it is about innovating technology. So with the product startups, there's always this question of how do you find the right technology? Um, how do you engage with it? Uh, how do you uh, incorporate it into your enterprise and how do you manage it going forward? Um, and I, I recently worked on a project uh, for it was a project that the Arts Council were doing in collaboration with Nesta. So it was uh, it was all about um, about arts organisations developing digital products so that they could um, generate long term revenues and become less uh, dependent on funding and more um, have a more sustainable financial model. And interestingly. A lot of those arts organisations who were very new to even to the idea of creating products, I think quite a lot of them had a very kind of un what I would say is quite an uncomfortable relationship with their technology partners. Uh, and, and, and quite often the technology partners were, um, you know, dominating them. Uh, I think a lot of the pricing was uh, over the top. Uh, the project management was, you know, uh, had holes in it. Uh, I think that's a very vulnerable position. And what I was advising all those um, early stage companies to do was to bring some kind of supervising technology function in-house. So in other words, to have a, access to a, um, a CTO or a lead developer, um, and this can this can uh, doesn't necessarily need to be full time or even part time. It can be just for a few hours a month, but to in a sense from a from a sort of strategic and project management point of view, to own the technology and manage it. Do you think then that that that's um, 
I, I would imagine that's fairly common, like you say, with, with service and product sort of industries. And we do get bound up in this image of tech as being the be-all and end-all of it. But as we know, Uber wasn't really a tech company. It was just a way of connecting things. Where do you see the skills in those businesses, in the startups, actually coming from? Are they having to buy them in then on a regular basis? So you mentioned just then the CTOs and so on. But are yeah. not these businesses are these businesses not starting up with someone tech savvy in there? No, a lot of them are not. Uh, Why do you think that is? Well, uh, I, I think it's... But, no, I mean, when you think that a lot of their business models are predicated on embedded technology yeah. as, a, as an enabler, yeah. you know, I, I just wonder why... It's interesting, isn't it, that they go into... It's almost like going into printing without understanding print technology. <laughs> Yeah, but it, yeah, but it's okay. Let's let let's let us let us uh, unpack that analogy. It, it, it's it's more like going into going going into magazine publishing, physical magazine publishing, knowing your audience, knowing your content, having a network of journalists, um, having a having a really fantastic vision of a new magazine, but um, not knowing about print production. So, I think you know if you look if if you look at it in that. In the in the framing of that analogy, it's completely normal. I mean, I I think what is what is true about that di distinction between te tech startups and product startups is that um, tech technologists, you know, developers, computer scientists, etc., tend to develop. I think tend to generate very different kinds of ideas for companies than people who approach it from a a user audience product kind of point of view you, you know you've talked about advising that they bring some kind of technical oversight function into the business but yes. how that almost seems like well we need a tech person and i i sometimes i've seen that in businesses where oh we talk tech the tech department's over there how do they actually how do these new startups that are taking real advantage of technology actually organize um, well well, I compared to how traditional businesses did, because the traditional business model literally was, let's put the tech department over there, the IT department, and you'd have endless arguments about getting stuff done. Yeah. Well, there's a kind of um, uh, there's there, there, there's received wisdom in Silicon Valley, and 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 it's it's it, it's it makes sense. It's based on experience. Uh, there's received wisdom about the the ideal startup team, and there's different versions of it. But um, to kind of uh, summarise those, the ideal team is the vision guy or woman with uh, the product idea, the idea, you know, the, the the insight into the problem that users have, and the, the essence of the solution. The, you know, the sort of seed of the solution, mm. the tech person who can build it and the salesperson who can go out and, and you know, sales in a broad sense, sales, growth hacking, you know, the person that can can get it out there and, 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 and build the um, user base. Okay. So to answer your question directly, ideally, ideally you, 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 you have a, a, a tech a senior tech person as part of your founding team, yeah. Mm. And there's two ways of doing that. You can you, you can literally craft your idea with 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 somebody who's 
who's who's a, a, a tech person. Um, but often people, often entrepreneurs, have trouble finding that person right at the beginning. Or you can bring them on as a sort of non-founding senior management person. But it, it's really tricky because these people, by the very nature of their talents in the marketplace, these people are able to earn a lot of money either in a salaried position or freelance um, very easily. There's a, there's, there's a, there's a shortage of them. Um, and there has been a shortage of them since the, um, really since the, 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 the 1999, 2000, um, you know, dot com boom and bust when lots of people, uh, there was a whole generation of people who had to go back to, uh, more conventional jobs um, because their their industry sort of disappeared, and it's taken it's taken a long time to build that um, that that um, talent base back up. So that's quite tricky. Um, you can offer equity because you know we're talking about businesses that, by definition, at the stage they're at, have have no cash. Um, uh, I think what how 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 people following the the sort of classic startup path do it is that they. They excite somebody who's a technologist with they excite them with their idea. They get them on board part time with a kind of explicit or implicit promise that when they start to generate revenues or raise funding, there will be a role for that person full time. And that will include, you know, some form of equity or yeah, some yeah. Form of interest in the long term success. It's a it's a really tricky it's a really tricky thing to do, and people struggle with it. How how do you how do you how do you incentivize somebody at that stage to to come on board? Um, and and I, you know, the, like I say, there's all sorts of vulnerabilities. If you if you if you um, if you go straight to a sort of te- you know a, a developer company um, and and try and do it as a subcontracting relationship. That can be that can be very problematic, uh, very difficult to manage. I mean, if you haven't got a technologist in in house, how do you manage an external technology partner? Mm. They can tell you anything anything they like. You have no way of judging the price, the time scales, the technology that they're they're, they're deploying, their methodology, their process. So it, it's um it's a, it, it's really tough, but it's probably one of the key things that you have to crack at that early stage okay so let, let's spool forward slightly and go to the point where we've got something that exists and we're out there selling it effectively on the market and i wonder how small firms with new things establish their credibility and how they compete against larger competitors so for instance if somebody releases a service that allows a business to communicate with their customers in a particular way, well, I'd say there are already 10,000 of those out there, but this might be a, mm. you know, a brand new way of doing it. How do you think smaller businesses like that can actually establish credibility and therefore compete with bigger companies, with R&D, okay. throw, you know, throw money and weight at things, really? <laughs> well, um, throwing, throw, um, throwing money at weight and weight at things um, isn't necessarily, doesn't necessarily work it doesn't necessarily create competitive advantage um and i'm i'm quite involved at the moment in um with a company that does what's called open innovation uh which involves uh 
kind of injecting startups into big corporates to drive innovation projects. Um, and that, that, that's an increasing um, trend. So um, I think it, it was McKinsey and Co. last year, 2015, published a report where they talked to several hundred um, world-leading um, corporates, and they came to the conclusion that in five years' time, 20% of corporate revenues will be generated by collaborations with startups. So in a sense, you know, in a sense, the, 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 whole, the whole sort of relationship between what big companies can achieve in terms of innovation and what startups can achieve is um, has been, you know, has been inverted mm. to, to a large degree. But um, so how do you compete? Well, if you think about the, the, the sort of classic, um, you know, lean startup methodology, uh, there's there's a thing called an MVP, a minimum viable product, which is low tech, sometimes can be completely manual, um, doesn't require any tech at all. But it's a if you like, it's a it's it's a prototyping process. It's a prototyping and trialing process. So what what um, very small, you know, upstart companies do is that they 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 use a very simple initial prototype version of their of their thing their product or service to create use cases uh, with actual users or if it's a b2b proposition with actual customers um and it, it's a you know it's a very sort of organic process it's not the kind of traditional you know sort of employ you know 30 salespeople and you know, kind of go out there and knock down it's doors. Organic, it's an organic process, effectively. Very, very much. It's a very much an organic process. And uh, you build use cases. You try and do that with real, real, real customers. I mean, it's how a, it's how, how a business like Slack exploded so fast. You know, you start, you know, you, you know, I mean, all the classic, you know, the the old cliche uh, you know, the story about how Airbnb got going, you know, which was literally knocking on doors in the block around the office and saying, has anyone got a spare room they want to rent? Um, this is this this is this is how you do it. And um, and it, it, it works with B2B as well. Um, it, you know, you 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 get a friendly uh, client on board and um, prove, you know, get proof of concept in, in out there in the real world. And it can can be very powerful. It can, you know, it can set I mean, fire I've, very quickly. One of the things in interviewing um, Andrew, who's the other person on this podcast, uh, who manages a, a small small creative agency, um, came across very clearly as saying actually what they do when they pitch clients is they often take very rough and ready prototypes now, and the, the you know the pitch deck is long gone and absolutely. You know, they get an essence of an idea and actually create it. Well, this, I, I think this is this this is absolutely right, and I think that's probably something they've learned from the from startup methodology, and and because the tools are there, um, increasingly there are really accessible, easy to deploy, cheap tools for prototyping. Whether it's prototype, you know, whether it's wireframing a website or it's, um, you know, mocking up uh, an online publication or it's 
it's um, 3D printing a, a physical product, uh, or you or you use tools like, for instance, if you're if it's a service, you use a tool like service design a service design canvas to map the user journey. Um, uh, uh, and I think this, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer in this design centric user research where you, you know, you can you, you can you can do a paper mock up of a of a digital product uh, and test it. So the, 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 it's a much more kind of um, it's become a much more iterative process. Uh, and and the, the tools are there at each stage to. Um, to really bring to life what it is you're talking about rather than, um, you know, rather than kind of, as you say, kind of trying to uh, justify it at a distance with a, with a pitch deck. It's much more powerful. So let, let's talk a little bit then about skills in, in smaller businesses. Um, how, how, you know, we've, we've talked a lot now about using different tools and methodologies. How do you keep people up to date? in a small business when you've got obviously margin and revenue pressure and liquidity and all of that sort of, all the sorts of business issues in the background. How do you well, actually find the time and the money, if you like, to keep people moving forward? Because 18 months is a long time in a startup and the technology model can change considerably along that journey. And well, it's, it's a big investment. I think one, one answer is in the kind the kind of people that you employ. Um, so, in the first, sorry, I'll start that again. I think one answer is 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 fundamental, and that's about the kind of people that you employ. Uh, and I think there's a there's a big debate here between um, specialist and and um, I'd call it between specialists and strategists. So there's a that when you're conceiving the evolving organizational chart of a of a small digital creative business um there's a there's a real dilemma about which disciplines do you bring in house and which disciplines do you partner with collaborate with subcontract etc and uh one of the things that i've seen work particularly well is um, recruiting young digital creatives from courses like uh, the course at, at, at Bournemouth University, where they um, where where the education training is extremely broad. Um, so, you know, I've worked in um, when I've been particularly when I was interim CEO of a, a digital storytelling agency in Manchester for a while. We were recruiting people from Bournemouth who had multiple skills. Uh, they could they could build websites, they could code, they could they could um, they could design, they could do anima animation, um, and they 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 had a sort of if you like an overview of the technology, and also a, 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 they they practiced multidisciplinary projects. And not just in their own department, with other departments like the film department or animation or computer games, they 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 had a multidisciplinary mindset, and I think this is increasingly what you need inside uh, um, agencies and digital businesses of all of all sizes. You, you need this kind of ability to synthesize, because the 
what's happened is that the basic skills, coding or whatever, have become commoditized. And those things, you know, you can outsource, you can you can buy them in, you know, Belarus or somewhere with a at a very high level, skill level. But the so the the in a sense the 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 emphasis of the of the digital skills that you need has has evolved mm. and it's much more this kind of synthesizing integrating um architecting type of mentality that you need those are they're, they're very different skills okay so ugh, thank god i can edit this um <laughs> <laughs> Uh, why? Because I'm talking bollocks. Or... No, you're talking brilliantly. Actually, I'm just. I can hear what Andrew said to me, and I can hear what you're saying. And I think, you know, I'm gonna have a. They fit. It's good. Yeah, it fits really well. Actually, it's really nice because he's got this agency gravity, which is a pure advertising marketing agency. But they're very savvy digitally, and yeah. he's come out of a traditional DM. I met him when I worked at Chemist. Oh yeah. So um, you know, and then you're taking the sort of broader approach. I think it's going to be really good. But uh, okay. So taxing your brain, thinking yeah. about how you're going to integrate it. Yeah, yeah, a little bit already. I mean, I, uh, the one with Fidian and Debbie was really hard to edit. Oh, and gosh, it turned okay. out really, really well in the end. Okay. But anyway, yeah. Um, so two questions left, and we'll rattle through them. Um, how do you keep, in a business, in a small business, how do you keep sight of the, the creativity at the hub of it when it is so easy to let the tech lead things? Well, I think, I mean, this is a this is a real um, kind of I've got a real beer in my bonnet about this because I think it's I think our thinking about this stuff is really limited by a reductive definition of creativity. Yeah. And, and, and the way you frame that question kind of evokes that 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 model which says oh there's a thing called creativity and then there's this other stuff mm. that can either enhance it or it can get in the way i think that's not the case i don't think that's a helpful way of looking at it because i think what's needed now is a sense of a much broader definition of creativity as a kind of problem solving solution architecting discipline you know, I, I'd like to call people in. If I was running an agency, agency, I'd have people that are called solution architects, who are super. You know, in a, in a, who are innovative across the whole piece, from the technology to the, the visual or design part to the business model. You know, to the organisation yeah, I mean, to I'm, deliver it. I'm smiling when I hear you say that because obviously, as I mean, we know each other personally, but uh, yeah. you know my background is effectively that anyway. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I'm asking this project. I'm, I'm really, in a sense, asking the question because I do get asked it myself by, yeah. you know, artists who started to use a bit of tech and by writers who are using a bit of tech. And yeah. They don't see that the tech itself is just another paint palette. You they, know, do, they do or don't see that. They don't. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they do. And and, and, and once they... To me, once they take that step and start to think like that, they run with it like nobody's business. But there's Absolutely. still this ecosystem around it. 
yeah. that does reduce it down to just tech or creativity or art or creativity and, you know, mm. that, that likes the distinctions. So one of the answers to this is the way you constitute teams within the agency, uh, uh, the, way you, the way you put together teams to address uh, briefs and to deliver projects. So one of the key things is to be multidisciplinary from the get-go. Well, it, 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 it's partly a question of process. So in, in, in a traditional agency model, the, the, the creatives kind of do their thing before the tech people come in, and, and, and the tech is, is seen as a, a, an enabling thing or as a realization, set of tools for realization. So in terms of how you constitute teams and how, what your process is for driving a project forward, e equal standing for creative tech and business in the team from the get-go. Okay, and ugh, the last question then, um, and I'll frame this slightly different to how it was written on the email, but okay. um, how much of a change have you seen in the wider business ecosystem in terms of, you know, understanding the nature of integrated technological businesses? Because I know, for instance, with when, when, you know, I had contact with investment companies, you know, 10, 12 years ago, they would always employ a specialist technical advisor. Mm. And, you know, they would, again, like we're talking about with art and like we're talking about with technology, they'd separate the two. But I wonder how much and how technically literate you're finding A, clients, B, customers, and C, you know, investors, pure investors now. Well, let's, let's start with the investors because most investors still don't know anything about technology and cannot assess it. Um, so, again, that points to a need to have high-level technology um, expertise in-house, yeah, in, in, in the sort of strategic overview sense that I was talking about before. Um, who were the other categories again? Clients. Well, when you're when you're out pitching clients in in a B two B situation, for instance, with your new service, mm. how technologically savvy are they? Do they just see the effect of what you're doing, or do they see the real potential? Do they see it as a piece of technology they can buy into, and either copy and emulate, or, or grow from, or you know, all those things? Are they technically clued up enough? I think an increasing number of clients are technically technically clued up because they've maybe paid the price in the past for uh, their naivety and uh, and the um, ability of uh, smart entrepreneurs to um, you know to, to overpromise uh, on, 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 on what the technology can do. So I, I think increasingly, Technologists within agencies, within small agencies, within digital agencies, within um, digital service companies, B2B companies, find themselves in a dialogue with somebody really savvy at the client end. So it's become much more of a kind of level playing field. And um, I think I, I think it's, it's much harder to um, sort of oversell the benefits of uh, of, an, of, a, of a seemingly innovative technology, you know, pioneering technology. Um, you know, clients are increasingly savvy. Mm -hmm. Do you think? Do you see? Do you see a future where 
um, you're going to meet clients who are in, in normal everyday service industries, not, not technical companies, but are more technical, if you like, than the companies approaching them. I think that's in, uh, yeah, I think that's entirely possible. Uh, and I, I think it's, it's, it's likely uh, because I think clients will increasingly take responsibility for strategy, for their own strategy. And that, it, that would include the tech, technology element of that strategy. And it, it, I, I think the, the dynamic will change between clients and their, you know, their, their, their suppliers, if you like, including their, which includes their agencies. Uh, and I think, I think technology itself is driving this in a way, because uh, if you think about the way technology is evolving into um, sort of pre-existing technologies and modules that can be deployed quite easily, rather than building stuff from scratch. I mean, stuff is still being get is still being built from scratch, but this is but these are limit cases. These are things on the edge, you know, with 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 I don't know natural language processing or you know intelligent agents and this kind of thing. But the the increasingly the rump of everyday technology that gets used in business is 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 sort of pre built, you know, in in, in exactly the way that for, that for instance computer games are now built in, in Unity, yeah. You don't have to reinvent from scratch a little module that shows a character running. It's there in Unity and you just deploy it and kind of integrate it and customize it. More and more tech is like this. Look at how websites are built. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I've built innumerable websites myself in Squarespace for, I don't know, you know, $8 a month. I don't need to spend, you know, 30 grand, let alone, you know, five grand or even two grand on having a website built for one of my businesses. Just not necessary. No, on, so on I, that front, a few years ago, I found myself turning work down um, with a friend who asked me to build a website. And I said, you don't need to pay me to do that. Just hmm. I'll go and get WordPress and yeah. for it. Yeah. And she's yeah. become very skilled at manipulating WordPress very quickly. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so. But, you know, so, so I think that increasingly the deployment of technology will be about high level strategy and i believe that brands companies will and i think should bring that strategy in-house that should be a sort of right at the heart of their brand and right at the heart of the creation and evolution and deployment of their products and services so can I ask you one very last short quick thing? Um, small businesses, small creative businesses, do you think conceptually they should stop worrying about the technology and think only on what value they're creating? And if they're thinking technologically, they should think architecturally in terms of service or solution. I think small creative businesses should focus on what their users want. They should focus on making things, whether they're products or services or platforms or experiences, making things that users want. Start from the user. And, and then when you've got the, the essence of a beginnings of a, of a, of a, of a product, 
very quickly find the, a, a technologist who can work with you to um, scope that out and, um, and, and, and begin to build it. Uh, but I think the key thing is always, uh, as, as Paul Graham says, make something users want. So that's that. I hope you enjoyed this edition of Technique and you can find more through searching for us on iTunes. For the rest of the podcast, please subscribe or you can go to createhub.com. That's create-hub.com where you can find links to the podcast and also read the articles and join in the conversation. Thank you. Next time on Technique. Um, Sam, you created a Twitter bot cloning, attempting to clone my personality um, and, in my opinion, <laughs> failing miserably. I talked to my housemate about Twitter bots. Design thinking has exploded into the workplace of the 21st century, putting humans at the heart of design. Or does it? Isn't it just the post-it note workshops? More importantly though, where did it come from? How did it become such a massive industry? And where on earth is it going? Is design thinking what is taught in design schools? And can it be used as a philosophy for the future? Find out more as we, Richard Adams and Sam Fry, explore these ideas with experts in the field on our first Technique mini-series about design thinking. Subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss an episode.